I'm using my mainframe here and I got two options, microphone or headset, because it was built before they had a combination headset microphone. I got I got the same issue, but uh, now I now now I'm I don't turn this on by accident. It, ha mm. it happened during one interview and the audio quality was so bad that I don't know I, I think I had to scrap the entire episode, but <laughs> And it was with Elon Musk I heard, so that was <laughs> a real tough one. Yeah. I don't you know, imagine. Yeah. Can we do this again? Are you busy? <laughs> um, as you can see, my name is Josie. Here's my daughter's uh, education Zoom account, I think. So my wife, my wife was just standing here and she's like, who's Josie? I'm like, that's me. I'm like, it's either a flasher or it's Andrew. So we're all good. It's me. <laughs> How's your morning? Oh, doing great. Morale's very high. Uh, I brought my kids to daycare and day camp. I got the house to myself. I'm in the office though, and this is actually the cat's room. And oh. I closed the door. The cats were scratching and meowing, so I had to leave the door open. You have to let them in. It's the cat's office, but they don't even have jobs, so it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> they do have jobs. They got to sleep all day. Yeah, yeah, and they do that well. Yeah, uh, I'm getting everything ready. Of course, uh, yeah. There's always technical issues and like the nerves and the excitement that go together. I I wrote some notes yesterday. Yeah, And I had it on two pages, just big enough so I could see it. And then I shrunk it down to the perfect amount. And then I try to view it and it will keep it at 52% now and it won't let me put it up. And oh. then I, but it's just leaving it like that. It's fine. Okay. Great. I have now it on two different pages, but I really like talking about my program. So it's not like I have to memorize anything. It's just something that I generally blast people with whenever I meet them, you know. When someone says, hey, how are you doing? I just start talking. That's that's perfect. It's exactly what this is about. Mm -hmm. I try I try to ask some questions and be like, so what do you do? And then the people just ramble for as mm -hmm. long as they want. And then I, mm -hmm. I throw in a couple of uh-huhs and nice and then maybe ask a couple of questions. And, you know, the less of me talking, the better. But you you do have a beautiful voice, though. Oh, uh, you should have seen you should have heard it this morning. I couldn't stop coughing. So when the weather changes, it's it's raining now, right? So it's um yeah, it gets a little bit cold. I get like um, I it's kind of like seasonal. Uh, why am I losing the word for it? Seasonal, not seasonal asthma or seasonal allergies. Asthma. I have uh, I have post nasal drip. Yeah, I have yeah. that too. Yeah, yeah. So I'm always clearing my throat. So I went on the Zoom meeting for ten minutes before, and you weren't there, and I'm I had a couple of these fishermen's friends. These are my favorite, the green ones. Yeah. Uh, and I drank some water and trying to clear your throat, clear my throat, you know? Yeah. I, uh, I usually get it in the winter with, uh, uh, like a seasonal asthma. Mm -hmm. But for whatever reason, I guess the, the temperature changed so fast from super hot, humid to cold and, and windy. And now it's starting to bother all morning. I've been coughing, but, uh, fishermen's, I like fishermen's. Those are in my desk at work still. And the green ones, the other ones are too harsh. The green ones just taste like a really, like, um, almost like an Altoid. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I went to an allergist because my wife said, maybe you're allergic to something. I'm not allergic to anything. They said maybe it's because I have uh, some reflux and the reflux, it all works together and makes the uh, and makes the postnasal drip worse. But I, I was in the waiting room waiting for the results of my allergies and I was not allergic to anything. And even the control group, which is like they give you poison ivy, I was just a little bit allergic to it. And the lady next to me, she was in hives. She had all oh. of them. And she said, what are you allergic to? I said, apparently nothing. And what are you allergic to? She said, apparently everything. It was a great moment. It was funny. 
I, I spent some time at the allergy uh, clinic and a couple of hospitals trying to figure out what I'm allergic to. Like I, I went into anaphylactic shock uh, on my 29th birthday. So we're going back like. Uh, I remember you talked about that on the podcast. Did you talk? About- no. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I've right. mentioned it. So. Yeah. Uh, they never really figured out, but I've always been up and down with like stuff I can touch, chemicals, products, you know, uh, for a while I couldn't touch honey and hot sauce. And uh, now I'm gluten intolerant and lactose intolerant. I don't, I don't t- trust honey. It's like a bee secretions. I just don't trust it. I, I, I always used honey. I put it in my smoothies and my coffee. And then when I had to take it out, I was so. I'm so sad. Yeah, even silk, I don't trust that. You know, it comes out of like a, a worm's butt. It's like, uh, <laughs> I, I have a mental block when it comes to honey and silk. Honey and silk. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. Where you're saying, uh, what else are you allergic to? Maybe triggers it. Over the years, like uh, I just get random like breakouts from things, and I got okay. Don't touch this soap. Don't touch this chemical. Like I, I'm not a little bit better now, but I think a month ago or a couple of weeks ago. I had a uh, hazelnut flavored coffee and I turned red. I was, I couldn't breathe. I was like, my wife's like, what do I do? I'm like, I don't know. If I, if I start breaking out on the hives or I pass out, take my EpiPen and jab me and call an ambulance. She's like, oh my God, what do I do? I'm like, just jab it in my thigh. Like, it'll be okay. I, I just took some Benadryl and, and drank some water, had a cold shower and I was fine. But that's the first time in years that, that that's happened. And so, and they always said to me, it was probably a tree nut of some sort that I was allergic to, but we, we weren't really mm-hmm. sure. But, um, you know, I got some other embarrassing uh, stories about the allergy clinic that I don't know if uh, that's slut. It's uh, not PG, so I won't mention it. But just to say that, you know, they've uh, tested me on my back. They tested me on my arms and I'm allergic to weird things. But you can make an episode about that. I My buddy asked me, he's like, you got, you got to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's kind of funny because some of the teachers at work, a couple of years ago, uh, they found out by accident what was how I got tested, and and they were dying. They were following me around, and they were laughing at me for like a month. But um, I might I might mention it one day. I might mention it one day on a random episode. But anyways, yeah, you always need uh, material, though. You know, like uh, anything can be an episode that's worth listening to. Anything interesting is worth listening to, and we love hearing it. And I'm glad to put a face to the name. I didn't. I don't have my sunglasses on today. And you're not a cartoon. I'm not a cartoon, so you know, just uh, at least uh, my beard's not as bad. When I first started doing the interviews at the beginning of the summer, my beard was like this. But luckily, nobody else is going to see it. So we're not here to talk about me, though. We're here to talk about you, Andrew, and your program. And I was checking out your stuff, Google Classroom, your blog, the music you you put together. So uh, that's freaking awesome. So you're a teacher, researcher, amateur musician, comedian game designer, motivational speaker, and uh, mindfulness coach. So we'll go back to the beginning, like I ask everybody, uh, which one did you start with first, and did you know you wanted to be a teacher? Uh, well, we start from the beginning. Uh, I've been playing music a long time. My mom read an article that if you played Vivaldi in the womb, the baby would be really smart. So uh, she, she did. And I think it I, maybe it worked, maybe it didn't. I don't know. But my mom has always loved classical music. And when the hippies were listening to psychedelic rock, she was listening to classical music. When disco came about a few years later, she still listened to classical music. And when I was three and a half years old, she brought me to Stewart Hall, which is a cultural center in Point Claire. And she said, you're going to start playing violin when you're four. And I said, what's a violin? She's like, you'll find out. <laughs> and she strapped a violin to me when I was four. And I've been playing music ever since. And my son is five now. I can't picture him playing violin. Uh, I can't picture him 
listening to the teacher well enough to to learn it but I, I did and I played it for a long time and then I think in grade five I did an informal survey and the violin was not that cool so I told my mom I said I did this survey and my sample size says <laughs> the violin is not that cool but the electric guitar is scoring off the charts she said I'll get you an electric guitar if you want and you can transition from the violin to the to the guitar and I transition over there. But it's funny that now that I'm 42 years old, I think when I was about 29, I realized the violin is kind of cool. It is. So it like from age 14 to 29, it's not that cool, but then you discover it's actually pretty cool. And learning how to do anything well is cool. So, uh, so make a short story long, I'm playing music my whole life. So the music has got to be the first thing. And the music is the reason that I started the program, because when I started teaching, they gave me like nursery rhymes to teach to grade two kids who are now seven, turning eight years old. Mm. And you're trying to tell an eight year old boy, you're going to sing Row, Row, Row Your Boat. And he's <laughs> not into it. No. So I gradually started writing my own songs, composing them and, and recording them with GarageBand and with uh, an electric guitar and with... Uh, maybe four or five of my harmonies to, to indulge my musical taste. And the kids, they really liked them. And they liked them better than nursery rhymes because you're giving them something fun. And the fun thing about composing music for kids is that everything is a song. Yeah. When you look at the radio, like how much of it is love songs? Like there's a love song that's a love song. For kids, anything is a song. Uh, transportation is a song. Colors are a song. Numbers are a song. The days of the week, the months of the year, anything could be a song. So you never run out of material. Like, like I, yeah. So I would say that the music came first. And I've always told the kids like funny stories about my life. My daughter, when she was two years old, she was doing tons of funny stuff. And they love to hear about that stuff. So you bring the comedy into it. And the gamification just came later when I started to make Roblox games. Uh, the meditation, it's just, uh, I wanted something a little bit more fun than the traditional spa music. I composed my own and I would use that and get the kids used to the same spa music. And then that becomes like almost Pavlovian that they hear that spa music and they know, okay, it's time to calm down. Yeah. Do our breathing exercises. And the motivation, I'm a pretty positive person in general, and I try to share that with the kids. And doing the research that I've been doing this summer, all four of those first things actually motivate students. So it all comes full circle. So in order of uh, what came first, the chicken or the egg or the dinosaur, first was the music, then it was the comedy, then it was the gamification, then the meditation, then the motivation. I would say that is my order of of order of preference you said i'm going to be a teacher this is what i'm going to do or oh. you, you kind of fell into it oh well um i did what you're supposed to do growing up you know you you start off and they say get a business degree so then you can be a marketing guy or something and i did a business degree at john molson school of business and to my surprise when you leave university with that business degree especially in the mid-2000s they don't just give you that marketing degree that you see on TV. And at first you're like, oh, I'm going to do something cool. I'm going to do product innovation. I'm going to do marketing. I'm going to do advertising. And you get there and there, 
there was nothing that they were offering me. Uh, they, what they did offer me was to sell insurance, which is not exciting. There's some people that are very good at it and some people that like it. But for me, I wasn't good at it. Well, I never did it because I'm not the kind of person that I don't think that that would suit my personal like skills. Uh, I can only imagine when you go to a party, when you sell insurance, the first thing you have to say is like, hey, have you ever thought about dying? It's very expensive. Like funerals <laughs> are like $10,000. And they're like, oh, here comes Andrew again, trying to sell me insurance. <laughs> uh, what else do they offer me? They offer me sales jobs. Yeah. Uh, did you ever do sales? I, I've done telemarketing. I've done some sales. Uh, telemarketing was horrible because it's, especially when you're a teenager, it's, it's cold sales. Mm -hmm. They're yeah. calling people and harassing them and they're mm -hmm. telling you to F off and everything. And you're like, this is not for me. And I, I dabbled in a little bit. I did, I did some, uh, like, uh, future shops, store sales, like people trying to sell people on the floor. Um, I've applied for other jobs. I've done the fast food. I've worked at the cinema. I worked at Wendy's. Mm -hmm. I've done construction. I've talked to clients on the job. That's, that's different, but the cold sales and trying to get people to buy stuff, that's, it's hard. Yeah. Sales and also if you're a salesman, first of all, like uh you have to be really confident in your selling abilities because your paycheck is always tied to your sales. Second of all, if you're making a sale, chances are they they already had that product and you're like stealing someone else's customer by undercutting them a bit. So every sale you're making, you're taking food out of someone else's yeah. kids' mouths too. So make a short story long, I I, I didn't find a cool marketing job like they promised on TV. And then like the only thing available was being a salesman or selling insurance. And I went back to school. Both uh, my parents were teachers. Uh, my dad later on worked for the school board as a science consultant. But my parents, they both, uh, they were teachers for 30 years and then they, they retired. And I've always loved talking. And I, I, I've always loved spending time with people, with kids, with teenagers, with adults. I'm a people person. So I went back to school. I was 28 years old. And I said, this is this is it. It's now or never. You know, we're all the reflection of the decisions that we make in life. You know, some people, you're born with better luck, you're worse luck, but uh, you have decisions you can make, but you have like a time limit on some of them. You know, you, you have to find the right spouse early enough. You have to find the right job, the right place to live. And I wanted to wait Till I finished my teaching degree to have kids, but I knew like if I'm going to make this change, I'm going to make it now. I have to thank Quebec's university system for allowing me to go back and do a second degree. You know, if we lived in Vermont, just across the border, that'd be another two hundred thousand dollars, and I would have sold insurance to provide for a family, and I would have bit the bullet, and I would have done something I didn't really like to support my family. But in Quebec, we have really we have the cheapest university in North America, I think, and. It allowed me to go back and I have a crippling uh, student loan of uh, $8,000 that I'm paying off over 55 years. So I only have that to show for it. Yeah. It's not bad for compared to no, 200,000. No, it's nothing. It's nothing. I speak to, I speak to teachers uh, and people regularly from the States and they tell me that they're doing two and three jobs yep. on top of teaching to yep. pay off their student loan. And if they have a mortgage or if they have healthcare issues, guess what? They're borrowing on their house. And how how can you give the students everything when you're exhausted from working another 40 hours? You know, like uh, uh, Quebec is not perfect, uh, but we have some things that uh, I really like. The childcare here, the university tuition here. There are ideas that 
were put in place that they allow you social mobility and they allow you a better quality of life. And uh, I guess no place is perfect, but we choosing where to live is a choice too. Like it'd be harder for us to move to the States, but we could pay, you know, less in taxes if we moved to Ontario, but we'd be paying a hundred bucks a day for daycare. Everything is a, you got to weigh the pros and cons. Is the grass greener on the other side? There's a lot of fences all around. So I like to complain about Quebec. I mean, I like, I like what we have. I think we still have the cheapest real estate, even though prices have been going crazy. Uh, gas prices and, and food, well, you know, that, that's that's another story. In the last mm-hmm. couple of years, it's another story. But like you said, we had reasonable daycare. We had reasonable health care up until recently. Uh, we had reasonable services. And if we go south to the border, we'll pay for something. And it also doesn't mean that we don't have a lot of waste in our medical system, in our you know, in, in our bureaucracy, but the idea of providing social services that Quebec has, I think it's good. And it allowed me to do a, a second degree. So when I went back to school, uh, I was trying to help pay the bills too. So I actually got a job at a private school teaching kindergarten English and grade three and four. At this private school, they had kindergarten English, which was, which is funny because in kindergarten, when I look at five-year-olds now, my son is five. It, it's wild to uh, have them learning a, a second language like in school. It, it's, it's quite the task. And I never realized this because I had spent time with young kids like that. But half of them write backwards. Did you know that about five-year-olds? They do. A lot of them write their letters backwards. And it's, it's just um, it's the way the brain processes because it's not, it's not natural. Mm-hmm. And, and so a lot of them they still struggle with that going through the first couple of grades, but uh, it, you know usually usually it kind of works itself out if uh, with practice. And this was it was funny. And the teacher came in. He said, "How was your class?" And I said, "I don't want to alarm you, but I think half these kids have dyslexia. They all read backwards." And he says, "No, no, you get used to it." And I had never seen that before. And these kindergarten kids were also my first experience with hearing just how funny little kids are. Little kids, they say the darndest things like they say on that tv show yeah. say the darndest things and every day one kid would tell me something funny every day there was always something at the end of the day you're like that this is good it's good it's good content it is <laughs> write it down. first class the first kid sean shout out to sean i remember you he said hey mr andrew counting to 100 would take forever <laughs> we were practicing counting and i said yeah Forever or one minute, either way. And the next day, I saw him again, or the next week, he said, hey, Mr. Andrew, I have a brother. He can read. <laughs> I said, you are my favorite, Sean. You're my favorite. And this uh, private school, private schools are, are interesting, too. Did you ever teach at a private school? I, I worked at a private school in, um, in D, um, Cote St. Luke. I wasn't the teacher, but I did teaching assistants, uh, animator, stuff like that. So very different dynamics. Yeah. Public system. Uh, yeah. What did you notice that was different? Well, everybody has uh, technology. They up to date everything. Uh, there, I don't know. Everyone's the same. Like it's not a public school. It's not multicultural. Like if you're going to a specific private mm-hmm. school, depending on which one it is, it's usually geared like. Um, like a, a certain uh, demographic, yeah, and I, their language was just a bit different. I unfortunately got the I go to the Montreal Canadiens every weekend, and I have money, and my parents drive expensive cars, so I own you attitude. 
I didn't I didn't I didn't like that too much, but they all seem to be able to read. They all seem to have uh, a lot of them were in programs, music programs. Uh, they, they, their schedules were busy and they just like they talked about different things that kids in public school wouldn't talk about necessarily outside of the normal interests. Uh, I taught at a private school in Riviera de Prairie and it wasn't the same type of clientele. It was a pretty mixed clientele and different socioeconomic backgrounds. I think a lot of people wanted to send their kids to that school to give them the best chance at, at success. Right. And uh, one thing that was funny that I that I uh, observed and something that in my public schools I've never seen is that they took grade three kids on a field trip to Ottawa overnight. Oh, wow. In my, in my public schools that I've taught at 20 of them, we've never sent grade three kids on never. a train overnight. That's a fancy private school thing. Yeah. And, and I remember that day they said, Andrew, uh, you're going to have to accompany the kids to Ottawa. And they say, don't worry, you're, you're paid for this on the field trip. And then, uh, you know, you calculate, it's like, this is going to be a, a big day. It's going to be 48 straight hours of uh, you got to be on. And we showed up at Windsor Station. Well, first, you know, you show up at the school at 5.30. We get to Windsor Station and we're all on the train at, I think we left at 7 a.m. to go to Ottawa. And they only wanted to have the grade three kids spend one night in Ottawa, but they packed that field trip filled with so much stuff. We were at the Museum of Science and Technology at 9 a.m. Then we went to the War Museum at 11 a.m. Then we went to the like the Modern Art Museum yeah. at like at like 1 p.m. Uh, then we went to another museum and then we went to the Hard Rock Cafe and we were doing stuff and we got back to the hotel at 9 p.m. And we all we put all the kids to bed and that took a while. And the funny thing is, is I imagine if you had a grade 11 trip and you said, if you kids need anything, let me know. No kids are calling you. But when you do that with grade three kids, you say, if you kids need anything, just let me know. And they do let you know. Every and two seconds. Kids, every two seconds. I got the phone. My phone was ringing. And they say, Mr. Andrew, it's too dark. Mr. Andrew, it's too light. Mr. Andrew, how do I brush my teeth? Mr. Andrew, like, he's talking too much. Mr. Andrew, he doesn't want to talk with me. So every room you were getting something. And uh, that was a long night. They were calling me till midnight. And then since they wanted to do so much stuff, we had wake up call at 5 a.m. We went to see the parliament building. And after breakfast, and we had a, they let us in, I don't know, maybe we had a connection, maybe they let schools in, and I, I was exhausted, the kids were exhausted, and I remember that was a very intense 36 hours that we spent in Ottawa, and you would never do that at a public school, so for me, the private school, that's what, that's the one thing I remember that was different, that, and uh, uh, they kind of think that, like, it's your privilege to work at a private school, so... I think like uh, they don't pay you for any of your planning periods. They don't pay you for your, uh, for stuff like that. So I remember that, like they, you see your first paycheck, it's for like 10 hours. You're like, those are the hours you're in the classroom. I'm like, but I was at school all day. I was planning and like, no, that's the way it is here. The first year was, you know, I got offered X and I got B. I wasn't too happy about that. But then going forward, I stayed for a couple of years and then they're like, 
okay, uh, I was looking for another job. And they're like, no, no, we want you to stay. And I said, okay, well, this is what's going to happen. I said, my breaks, everything, every five minutes in between, I'm getting paid for. Mm-hmm. Because I, I can't come for 10 hours, like you said. Like, you're expecting mm-hmm. X and you're getting this. Mm-hmm. But you're right. That's a teacher's. The teachers are there 40 hours. They're getting paid 27 hours. It really, and it's a full, it's still a full-time job. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I was planning, you know, I was, I was there all day. And that year when I, I was doing um like a maternity leave contract, you know, and those days were crazy because I would leave my house in Vaudreuil at 5 a.m. to get to the school before seven. Cause if I left at 6.30, I get stuck in traffic. Uh, and I would work till three. I was doing that only three days a week though. I was a three day a week contract, but then I would go over to Concordia and in my West Island brain, you know, uh, Riviera de Prairie and Concordia, they got to be close, right? No, they're like as far <laughs> as Vaudreuil to Concordia. Yeah. And I would rush them. There was traffic to get to Concordia. I was like, there's traffic going to Concordia from RDP at 3 PM. Who would have known? Yeah. And, uh, I would get there just have four. I did two double classes, finish at 10.30, and then get home at like, you know, 11.30. So my days, I would leave at 5 a.m., and then I would get home at 11.30, but that was three days a week. And then the other two days, I would do my schoolwork, I would do more planning. So that was a crazy year, I remember. I And here we're complaining about our traffic in Toronto and in Ontario. It's so much worse. You still have to commute for two hours. Or three yeah. hours just to get to yeah. your day job, let alone leave your job and go to university. Mm-hmm. I, I miss the days where bus and metro really got you everywhere. Today, bus and metro don't get you everywhere. It matter, no matter what anybody tells you, they still break down all the time. The metro system in Quebec and Montreal always breaks down. It's a hassle. It's always packed and driving anywhere. And you still can't get anywhere. And they, they're not necessarily doing a lot of work. They just put pylons everywhere, right? Mm. So you got to plan. Like, I'm going from point A to point B. By distance, it's 20 minutes. By, by traffic, it's an hour. So I, I grew up in Beaconsfield, and we had the 211 bus. That mm. was a pretty good bus. It came every 10 minutes. Whereas I had friends that lived in Pierrefonds and Point Claire. And at the end of the night, I was just getting off the 211. I went home. They had another two hours of additional buses. For them, it was a long and arduous journey. Yeah. And uh, I don't remember whether the 211 when I was going to Concordia, whether we had the reserve bus lane. But now when I go downtown, they, they seem to be able to beat the traffic. The 211, it can take its own. It takes the lane that the Tesla drivers take. You know, the, uh, the, yeah, you're right. They didn't have the reserve lane uh, no. when I was in Concordia either. So, I, I mean, the reserve lanes is great. Mm-hmm. If you can get for everybody who's commuting, I think we need a monorail system on top, like from east to west, west to east, north to south. Just well, they're hop. doing that. They're doing that, right? With the uh, the REM. I know, but they the the thing is that when we build things here, it takes forever. If you yeah, go, yeah, 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 the uh, Asian yeah. countries or European countries, they build stuff in like two seconds, and they're more efficient. Like in Europe, you go train to train to train to. Like why can't why can't that happen here? We really need. Just a monorail system for like major hubs, downtown, West Island, East End, South Shore, uh, Laval, and uh, well, northern a little bit, uh, a spot in like Northern Connect, maybe Saint Jerome. We just need a couple yeah. of main hubs for people to travel. That's it. It'd be like ten minutes. Boom, 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 boom. Well, the fact that our metro system never got to the airport seemed like a bit of an anomaly. Like it seems like a place that people would need to get to. Yeah, but uh, they designed it their their way, and uh, I. 
I'm excited to use the REM when it, when it's finally built in 2045, I think. <laughs> yeah. By the time it gets done. And I could take it to the Vaudreuil Hospital that'll be built in 3022. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I, so, uh, like I said, I love making a short story long. So, uh, <laughs> uh, during this time, I also was trying to finish my teaching degree quickly, which is funny because I talk in such a long-winded fashion in general. And uh, I found that you could take a course with the University of Athabasca and take additional credits. Did you ever hear that? I I wanted to ask I wanted to ask somebody about that recently because I I yeah. was looking into it. I always thought it was a big scam, to be honest. Uh no, they're real credits. They count just as real as anything. Yeah. Um, it's not like University of Phoenix or uh, wherever uh, Breaking Bad Saul went to school. You know, University of Guam. <laughs> it's a real university. Their thing is that, well, first of all, they don't have the subsidized prices like we have in Quebec. Right. The University of Athabasca was expensive. It was probably like a thousand bucks for six credits. And this was 13 years ago. Yeah. Um, the other thing is I needed English credits for my teaching English degree. And I saw there was a three credit and a six credit. I'm like, give me the, the six credit. I'll take the six credit combo, please. And they give you a year to finish it. And I was in the middle of doing this one-year maternity leave contract. I was taking five courses, and I didn't finish it in time. But they know that you probably won't finish it in time so that you could pay an extra 100 bucks a month yeah. or something to extend yeah. it. And I remember the first day I got that the package from University of Athabasca. Four giant boxes show up at my doorstep. I say, this class is going to be something. The first one had all of the novels. For like the first term and the first book we had to read was wakusta it was known as the first canadian novel it was i think it was set in like the 18 early 18th century don't quote me on that but it was almost a different style of english so it was a little bit harder to understand and it was a thousand pages and you pick up this first book and you're like I know there's 20 books. So like, are they all going to be like Wakusta? Yeah. And it was an interesting book. And I, and I got through it and it was, it was interesting. And the rest were not a thousand pages and they were not so old. But they had a sampling of literature from all over Canada. They had some Quebec books, um, uh, Bonheur d'Occasion, which was uh, Secondhand Happiness. They had Trente uh, Arpents which is 30 acres, which is funny because in Quebec, we measure things in arpent and in the rest of Canada, they do acres. And an arpent is the translation for acre, but an arpent is only like three quarters of an acre. So we're like, eh, it's like an acre. It's like an acre. It's, it's an acre-ish. How much land are you selling? Is it an acre? It's like an acre. <laughs> and that was good. And the re there were a bunch from Ontario, they were from Saskatchewan. There was some Gabriel Roy stuff from Winnipeg, and it gave me a uh, pretty well-rounded introduction to Canadian literature. But then the second term was poetry, and you're a, a poetry aficionado. And uh, I, I don't know if you ever had to memorize poems to be able to identify them on a test that you take at the Point Clare Library for your exam. <laughs> I remember I remember we had to memorize some poems. In uh, Concordia, even, one of my classes, I had to memorize a poem, believe it or not. And that was stressful, but uh, they, they were pretty good, and uh, I liked them. There was a lot of stuff by Irving Layton. He was a famous Montrealer, and that, that was good. But then uh, the third 
chapter. The third term was Canadian art. Ooh. And and I was not prepared for that. And they said, you may not be prepared for this. And I said, I'm not. And they said, but Canadian art has to do with literature. It's all connected. And we think that you'll be served by learning about Canadian art. And we learned about the, the group of seven and, and stuff like that. And uh, the funny thing is that I remember when I opened up those four giant boxes, it came with 24 postcards. And I said, oh, this is a free gift. You know, you, you sign up for University of Athabasca, you get a free gift. I put the postcards away. I think we probably recycled them. When I finally got to them a year later, uh, they were gone. And in the third term, they said, you'll now need those postcards that we gave you. And I didn't know you were supposed to save the postcards. Oh. But I was able to find most of them on, on Google, like find the paintings. But a couple of them I didn't. I still remember Land Speed. Was a Saskatchewan artist? I don't remember his name. I never found it. I never. So I said, if I get a, a question on land speed on the exam, I'm skipping that question. Yeah. Because you, we had to do two exams that you could do them at one of four libraries that they said can be invigilated centers. And I remember they said, you'll have to choose four of seven questions. And there was one of the questions on land speed. I said, not that one. So I choose four of six. Uh, so I got through those six credits. I finished my teaching degree in two and a half years. I think that's pretty fast. Or yeah, that's fast. In seven terms, or I, yeah, seven terms, like a fall, fall. Let's see, fall, winter, summer, fall, winter, summer, fall, winter. Maybe so, eight terms, eight terms. Yeah, and uh, then I, I started teaching. And when you start teaching, you well, at least in the, in the French system where I am, you teach English at so many different schools. How many schools have you taught at? Oh, I mean, going back, going back to when I started in the public school, because I worked for two school boards. Uh, I mean, I did contracts and I did replacements. So if I'm not talking about substitution, just contracts, uh, at least 10. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you teach English, you often have two or three schools. Two is normal. Three is a lot. One is rare. You really have to put in a lot of years to get that one school. Hmm. And I think I taught it about... 20 schools at, at, at this school board. And wow. uh, you see all kinds of schools, like in all kinds of, like uh, when you go to the Ontario border, like Saint-Zetzik, or you go to Il Perot, you go to Hudson, Saint-Lazar, uh, Vaudreuil, they're very, they're very different clientels. They're very different schools. And I, I got into that. And that's when they started giving me the material that you use for grade one and two. And that's when I realized that this stuff isn't good. They give you nursery rhymes for grade one and two kids. And like I said, you tell a kid to sing row, row, row your boat. And, and he or she is eight years old. They don't want to. And I would go on teaching forums and I hear the same thing. Literally, the kid, they don't want to sing row, row your boat. And do you know what the solutions that teachers on these Facebook forums gave? Do you know what some of these solutions were? Tell me, tell me. Well, first, all right. the kid doesn't want to sing row, row your boat. Solution number one, call the parents. Oh, my God. Solution number two, call the tell the teacher. <laughs> Solution number three, tell the principal. Go all the way to the principal. Solution number four, detention. Solution number five, um, tell them that they have to do it because you like the songs. And I say, these are terrible solutions. I say, like, these... Give them other options. But... But they sound exhausting as well, right? Like yeah. uh, dealing with parents, dealing with the principal, dealing with 
the homeroom teachers, those are hard minutes. Wow. Like, would you rather give them something that 95% of them will do willingly? Or would you rather force a round peg in a square hole or the square peg in the round hole? And you're just like by sheer force. And you're going to get burnt out if every day is a struggle. And and then a lot of people say, well, there's nothing better. I say, well, you can look for it. And if it doesn't exist, I'm always the kind of guy who who would be like, well, I'll make it. I'm going to make it myself. I'll create it. And I had GarageBand, I had a guitar, I had my vocals, which I could harmonize with. And I started making songs about everything, about the days of the week, about the months of the year, about colors, about the weather. You look outside, there's a car, you're like, a car, that's a song. You look at, uh, you're answering a question, yes or no, that's a song. You're saying good morning, that's a song. And if you put it in a nice little package, they don't even know that it's work, you know, and they're doing it willingly. Plus, you're giving them fun experiences that they cherish. If you go in there once a week, because we only have one period a week with grade one and two, but most of the schools, and you give them these positive experiences, they remember it and they look forward to the next class and they have a bond with you that it helps because teaching nowadays, it's all about the bond. If you don't have a bond, you don't have anything because I don't know with your schools, but we're going away from traditional discipline, right? We're not the nuns that are hitting them with rulers. Well, I find I find the pendulum is swung on there. Like we've gone yeah. a far away from yeah. uh, physical consequences yeah, to, yeah. to absolutely no consequences. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm always complaining about we need to find the middle ground here. And I'm mm-hmm. saying we need to hit the kids, but we need to. Yep. Uh, there needs to be consequences for their actions. Parents seem to be in loop for certain things. If they're not listening to the song or they don't want to sing, you're not going to call the principal or the parents and complain and, and mm-hmm. do a whole, uh, but that doesn't make any sense. But what we're experiencing now is we're experiencing, uh, we don't want bad press. We don't want parents to complain. We don't want people to be upset, but we're not disciplining people. We're, yeah. not, te- we're not teaching them respect properly, you know? Yeah. Now, yeah, it's gone the other way. We always go towards the positive. The only thing is, what people don't talk about is, all right, just say that you've disciplined one kid because he was being disruptive and they say you can't do that because he's upset. But you never think of the other 24 kids in the class that are that are bothered by one kid who's who's acting up. And yeah. like you have to think of both of them, like just because one kid is acting up and you don't want to discipline him because you don't want to make him upset. You don't want to traumatize him. But there are 24 other kids there, too. And you, you have to think of everybody in that class. And um, uh, so, uh, as I was saying, I try and take a positive attitude and I try and give them things that they're willing to do because if you give them tasks that they're willing to do, they're more likely to do them. Hmm. And if you give a kid row, row your boat, you've lost half of them. And then maybe you get half of them that are doing it because you're telling them to do it. And a quarter of them want to do it because they like anything. And the other quarter are just doing it. They don't want to get in trouble. But if you get... 22 out of 25 kids all pulling in the same direction. It's great. You have a positive learning environment. And if three kids are not singing, that's fine. But if there are three kids not singing and they're just sitting down, that's fine. But generally, what I found is if you make the material good enough, most of them will do it. And even if they're not doing it, they're not throwing a tantrum. They're not throwing chairs through the window. They're, they're just not doing it. And that, that's fine. Like if I have 22 out of 25 kids singing dancing, that's great. And I always give them a funny number because uh, I tied in with gamification. And, you know, long story to bring it back to my five pillars, which are 
clean comedy, music, gamification, meditation, motivation. I like to gamify everything. If we're singing and dancing, I say, if 76% of you are singing and dancing, we get a class point. And the funny thing is, tell a grade one kid 76% of 22 students, it means nothing to them. So what do we have to do? We have to count, right? So you practice your numbers. You're like, well, as everyone knows, 76% of 22 is or 16 or something like that. I just estimate. And then we go one, two, three, and we all count together. And it gives us a chance to practice our numbers. But at the same time, they know if we get to that magic number, everybody gets a point. Even the kids who are not participating will still get that point because the class has pulled them up and the class has given us what we need. If a kid is throwing a chair out the window, they're not going to get that point. Mm -hmm. I say that. And, and that's the next thing. You do like clean comedy. You, you use absurdist humor. And they like that. Kids love exaggerated stuff. Like uh, they, they love, like my daughter watches YouTube videos and everything is so absurd and so exaggerated. So you say like, all right, even if you don't participate, you still get the point. If we have, if we have 76%, if we have 16 kids dancing, we all get the point. Unless like you would get minus one though. You wouldn't get the point if you threw a chair out the window. Mm. Like you don't even say like you were talking, you make it huge. You may, <laughs> or you say like, now, you know what? How else could we lose a, a point, Mr. Andrew? Well, you, you know, if you go down, if you rob that bank, you're going to lose a point for sure. Which bank? The bank right there. If you rob the bank, you're going to lose a point for sure. They're like, if we rob, <laughs> so like, you make it funny. And um, one of the things with absurdist humor is that kids don't always know what something is if they're not strong in English, but they understand when something is too ridiculous that it's not right. And it helps them understand something. You make it ridiculous enough, they know you're joking and they understand it. I like sarcasm. Yeah, so, and kids, they like sarcasm, they like absurdist humor. Because the sarcasm and the absurdist humor, they go together. Because when you give them a sarcastic answer that's so wrong, they know that there's something there. And sarcasm, it, it works well. And uh, in my research, I noticed that humor and sarcasm they work well because humor and sarcasm you're getting an answer that you wouldn't expect right like that's the basis of comedy is to give you something you weren't expecting and that's why it's funny it's kind of shock value it's, it, it, it wakens you up a bit it makes it more memorable the answer too right yeah if if you make it memorable they remember it because it's memorable it's by its nature Something that is memorable is more memorizable. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, man, I go all over the place when I'm talking, but uh, that's basically it. I, I started with the music. I brought in the humor. My daughter started playing Roblox, and then I said, like, I noticed that uh, with Roblox, Roblox has an interesting business model. They get people to do all the work for them. Everyone makes the games for them. Yeah. Did you ever, like, you're, you're, your daughter's too young to play Roblox, obviously, and you're too old to play Roblox because I think their target age group is like 8 to 12. I've tried it. Yeah? I've and tried it, yeah. There, how many games do you think are on Roblox? 10,000 games? Oh, my goodness. There's so many different games on Roblox. I had a student of mine who was obsessed, obsessed, and I get emails from the parent. Parents like, he, he just don't let him like see a snippet of, of Roblox at school because he's going to – 
not even for like a five minute break. He, he, there's bad. There's some games actually that people make on Roblox that are inappropriate, yep. right? So they're all like it's user created content, and that's like the genius for the Roblox team is that they're not doing any of the work themselves. They get kids to make the games for them. But there's everything, right? There's Grand Theft Auto clones. There's Call of Duty clones. There's Mario Kart clones. There's Zelda clones. They're all just fake versions of games, right? And uh, I saw my daughter playing them, and I knew you can make them. So I, I looked at a YouTube video, and in that YouTube video, I think a 10-year-old kid explained to me how to make Roblox <laughs> videos. And I made five games. And the, I think I made five. And when you make one, you can copy that and use that as a template to make the next one. And I tie everything together. My song, um, like, yes, no, maybe, I don't know, goes with the story. The story is um, about like an animator for a birthday party. And it goes with the yes, no game. So in the background, the song's playing. You have to jump on a block with the correctly spelled word, like yes or no, or maybe, I don't know. And if you jump on the correct block, you get up and you can make it through the obstacle course. If you jump on the wrong one, you go through and you fall into the sky, into that pit of doom that is uh, the Roblox skyline. Mm. Mm. And uh, the kids, they like trying it out and it gives them, it's like it gives them a more constructive way to spend their time because these kids, they're going to play Roblox, they're going to watch YouTube, they're going to watch dumb videos they're gonna watch music videos and maybe you can steal a bit of that wasted time and trick them into working at home a little bit right maybe you can get them to practice their vocabulary and if you gamify learning everything's a game and nothing is work and you trick their brains into thinking that it's a game so i was making these roblox games and so they they play them at home some of them they, they let me know they say oh mr andrew there's a glitch in your game and uh, and with Roblox, nothing is perfect. Everything is like homemade and you try and fix the glitches. And the first game, it took me 16 hours to make it. It took me two eight-hour days, but the second one took eight hours. And the third one took four hours. And then I reused the same template. And the fourth and the fifth took like two hours. And I think I go on like in different phases. I go on different streaks. Like I have my Roblox phase where I'm like making a bunch of Roblox games. I have uh, the comedy video where you like, making a bunch of comedy videos. I have the music where I make a bunch of music stuff and I go in different phases and I've been out of the Roblox phase. I've been on the research phase right now. I've been researching how authentic music, how humor, how gamification, how meditation and motivation, they really are effective and effective tools. Of course, effective means doing something a better way and effective is like the affect. So a kid's mental state affects the way he learns. And if you have the kids in a good mood, they're more open to learning. And these are things that make the teaching more effective. If you make it more effective, it's more effective. And all of these things in my research, they've shown to help with the affect. The music puts you in a better mood because you're happy to hear some good music. The humor puts you in a better mood because First of all, when you're laughing, you're in a good mood. Second of all, uh, also like the music, if the teacher is showing you good music and funny stories, you think of this teacher not as like the nun that's hitting you with a ruler, but almost <laughs> like like uh, a TV show host who's like 
hosting a variety show. But that's like, what it is now. We're, yeah. we're entertainers. Yeah, but you can do entertainment well or you can do it badly. If you do it well and you make them learn in a fun way, you got your job done. And if you let them learn in a fun way and they're learning it, that's even better. Like, um, And the, the gamification, you make that fun, they're going to do it. Like, uh, yeah, so the modern authentic music, the research shows that it puts them in a better mood, they remember it. And if it's a melody, we're conditioned to think of like pop music in a way that it's like familiar. Mm -hmm. We're familiar with pop music. If you make the song in a pop music format, to them, it'll be more memorable. If you make it like a nursery rhyme, they remember it as something they don't want to remember. They're like, that's for babies. Like, I'm not a baby. They're push it away. If you if you like package it as pop music, they remember it because it's like, I remember this. This is the stuff I like. They think of it as something they like. Uh, the comedy, like uh, if you show them the same boring story week after week, it's boring. You make it funny. They want to watch it. And yeah, humor is great because, yeah, the, the kids are in a better mood. The kids are in a better mood. They see they have camaraderie in the classroom. They see you as someone who's giving them fun experiences. They see you as not a, a nun hitting you with a, a ruler, but with someone who's giving them positive experiences and they want to have another class the next week. The gamification, it puts them in a better mood because they think of it as they're playing a game. They're not in a class. The meditation, the research shows that if you're calm, it has an effect on the class because more people are calm. If 16 kids out of 20 are super calm, you have, by definition, a pretty calm class. And then what does that do for the teacher? The teacher is calmer. And know what? The teacher also thinks that they're a better teacher because the kids are calmer. And then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because you think you're a better teacher, so you teach better. And then finally, the motivation is tied in. If you tell them they're doing a good job and they always do a good job, then they'll continue to do a good job. And then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So um, that's what I built my project on, those five pillars. And I've spent the summer researching it. I've been uh, reading 10 different studies. I've been reading more than that, but I, I selected 10 studies, two for each of the five pillars. And I've been pulling out the ideas that I think speak most to me. It's for my annotated bibliography. Because I went back to do my master's two years ago, and I wanted to be able to justify my program. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to convince people to listen to you in life. Sure. Because people have their own lives. People have busy lives these days, right? Like uh, on average, I think both parents are working to pay for a mortgage, which is more expensive than it has ever been historically. We have these schedules that are always full. And learning anything new has a fixed cost to it. Learning a new English program for cycle one and two has a fixed cost. Now, these teachers complain that the program for grade one and two isn't good. But they know subconsciously there's a fixed cost to learning a new one, right? So if I tell them I have this new program that I've created, they won't necessarily listen to me. Because they may have a program already that they were given by the school because the school purchased the kit for 500 bucks 10 years ago. And is it good? No. Is the music good? No, no, it's terrible. Do the kids like it? 
No, but you know what? They they get through it. They yeah. how do they do it? They write a couple of agenda messages. They tell the kids they have to do it. Most kids will do it if you force them. But it's hard to get people to adopt something new because there's a fixed cost. Do they want to hear my 50 songs on 50 different themes? Maybe a little bit. Do they want to learn them? Maybe. Do they know if it's going to work? They don't know. So by going back to university and researching it, I'm trying to give myself the best chance to convince them. I say, it's not just me. It's research that shows this stuff. And I went in with anecdotal evidence that the kids like this stuff. And I'm going to come out with academic evidence. And for me, that's a, even if it just works for a couple of teachers and me, my days are better at the end of the day. I'm not that tired after I had five periods with grade one and two kids and we had fun. I'm not that tired. So if it works for you, it works for you. And you can't compare yourself to anyone else in life. You have to compare yourself to yourself. And at the end of the day, you've got to live with yourself. And uh, if what you're doing makes you happy, do it, whatever that is, as long as you're not hurting anybody. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that's, that's why I went back to school. And before that, I actually, what got me to go back to school is because plan A was to sell this to a, like a, a what do they call it? A, a publishing house. That was my next one. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have three big ones here in Quebec. Do you know the different ones? Uh, what do we have here? We have, uh, is Macmillan big here? No. We have CEC. Um, we have, um, I was thinking the English ones, but yeah, the French oh, ones. Yeah, we, oh, yeah, I'm dealing with the French ones. Yeah, yeah. We have, we have three big ones, and two of them already had a English program. Was it good? No, no, not good. Of course not. And one of them even made a new one. But they're like, listen, the kids don't like the music. So know what the answer is for them? Put less music in there. <laughs> oh, that's great. But they don't make better music because someone need to write it, right? Yeah. The reason they use nursery rhymes is it's a public domain. You could use Row, Row, Row Your Boat. You don't have to pay the guy that wrote Row, Row, Row Your Boat 400 years ago. Yeah. I think his, name was, his name was Gary, I think. No, that's just a fake name. Uh, no one knows, and you don't have to pay Gary's great, 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 great grandkids. So they use these public domain nursery rhymes. They're free. And they'll give you some excuse that uh, they're culturally significant, which in a multicultural society, who's to say that our culturally significant nursery rhymes have much significance, but whatever. Yeah. Um, and they use them, but they really use them because they're public domain. They're free. And the new program made by this, let's call them Company 2, uh, they took away the music. There's a little bit of music. There's... Some like campfire songs, like skeet, scat, scoot, scot, scoot, like this. And when I hear that, I'm thinking like, what'd you learn in school today? Well, I learned the words skeet, scot, scoot, scot, scoot. Well, they're not real words, so you didn't learn anything. And the teacher's just killing time for an hour playing these this onomatopoeia for you. <laughs> so uh, the third company, I approached them and I looked at what are the biggest companies Quebec Educational Publishing Houses. And this was the third one. And they said, this sounds good. And I went and talked with them. I had two meetings with them. And they said, this, it looks good. We're very excited for this project. And I said, oh, that sounds, this sounds great. Like, I, this couldn't be going any better. And they said, you know, it's not guaranteed, but I'm going to tell you, like, it's looking good. And everyone's really excited about it. And we'll, we'll keep in touch. And that was March 1st, 2020. Wow. And then two weeks later, 
the pandemic hit and then they said, no one's at the office. We're taking a break. And all the projects, including yours, are on hold. Uh, so I said, what do I do? Do I wait a year of my life? Do I twiddle my thumbs? And I said, I'm going to go back to university. I got to research it myself in the meantime. And I would email the, the guy every six months. And he would write back, oh, no, you know, we're still like thinking about what we're going to do. We're planning our next steps. And then he ghosted me. He never answered me for a year. And then this spring, I see that this company has made a new program. And like their program is based on gamification. Oh my God. I'm like, goodness. but you know, like I don't own gamification. So like I didn't invent it. No. I don't, I, I saw the program. I don't know whether my talk with them had any influence on it, whether my five pillars, I don't know. Probably. Probably. I don't know. It's usually, it's usually the case. They, they get ideas from interviews and that's a lot of the time why they interview people and then mm -hmm. they don't hear from them because they're going to take what you have. And they're going to kind of package it with, you know, somebody who's already in the system or a friend or a cousin or whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, there you yeah. 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 So they uh, they just came in with their own book. Um, there's a couple other publishing houses, but most of them say, like, it's a pretty niche product, grade one and two English. We don't do it for ESL. We don't yeah. do it. So in the meantime, I made my own activity book on uh, Genially. I share that with other teachers. Uh, all of my material is free. You know, like, the, I encourage teachers to use my videos, use my activity book, watch the story videos, you know, play the games. And it's all free. And teachers say like, oh, don't you want to get paid? No, I just want you to use it. I want teaching to be better. I want kids to like it. Like, I, I want your days to be better. I want your kids' days to be better. And they all uh, they all have access to it. And the, and everything is available on my, my Facebook page, Mr. Andrew ESL on Facebook. And it's Mr. Like the MR, in <laughs> D R E W and ESL. And I have a, a free website, like a WordPress site. And you could use that. That is, uh, with, it's Mr. Well, where is it? Mr. Mr. Andrew. ESL.home.blog. Yeah. And I have the Bitmoji classroom, the Google classroom, but I won't say that link. You know, it's like very, very long, like, <laughs> like a Bitmoji classroom link. You would, would take four and a half minutes to read all those characters. But <laughs> if you find me on YouTube, Mr. Andrew ESL, and you find me on YouTube, you find me on Facebook, you find me on uh, my my blog, you have access to everything you need there. You can download the activities, you can you can get the links to everything, and everything is free and just try it out because the kids they deserve better. And if no one is willing to make new songs, new story, comedy videos, games, well, someone has to do it and uh, may as well be me. And we all have our subjective skills in life, right? Like probably playing violin in, when I was four years old helped me love music, which helped me show my love of music to kids, which helped me create music and show them. Uh, another thing, like we all have our family history or genealogy that shaped us and the comedy thing is uh, i told you my great-grandmother was a quebec actress and she was like a comedic and a dramatic actress my great-grandmother her name was Juliette Bedivaux, and she was a theater star who became a radio star who became a television and film star wow and like just the love of performing this is my performing right it's like telling the kids stories 
animating them, doing funny voices. This is like it's part of it's part of me. And yeah, my grandmother she had a a street named after her downtown, Juliette Bedivaux. Yeah, street. yeah, yeah. And it's just south of Saint Catherine, near like Saint Laurent. And they named it for her because after she passed away, they named it for her. And there was a little park right there, and she would go to that park every day or every week, and she would buy homeless people shoes. Mm. She was known for buying homeless people's shoes. I've heard this story before. Yeah? Yeah, I have heard the story before. It, it rings a bell. No way. Not from me. No, not from, from someone you. someone else. That's amazing. I, I've, I, and I'm talking about a while, a long time ago. I've yeah. heard this story before. Well, the street Judy at Betty Vos, just south of St. Catherine near Saint Laurent, she lived on uh, St. Hubert Street. And she would walk downtown. And homeless people knew she was. They said, like, oh, you're Judy at Betty Vos. You're like, you have money. Like, not... <laughs> Even though a Quebec actor, it's like just a regular job, right? Like, yeah. like you're not rich. You like have enough money to live through being a Quebec actor, especially back then right. when salaries for like hockey players and actresses were were not that high. It wasn't millions of dollars, and they would say like, "Oh, you have money, and uh, can I have money?" She's like, "I'm not giving you money, but come with me." And she would buy homeless people's shoes, so people would notice that like all these homeless guys have really nice shoes. And she would buy them shoes. And then when she passed away, they named the street right by that park after her. And uh, she was the original spokesperson for St. Hubert Barbecue Chicken. Yeah, This is starting to ring a bell. There's a connection yeah. here. I must have heard it from my buddy. He's French-Canadian. and uh... Yeah. And she was, she was the original spokesperson. And she got free chicken for life. Oh, nice. <laughs> and my mom would go over every Sunday for Sunday dinner. And the funny part is that the original ad for St. Hubert Barbecue, when they first had TV ad, it was uh, a grandmother who, it was like table pour douze or something like that, where she has unexpected company and she serves them all St. Hubert Barbecue, pretending that she made herself. <laughs> but I like it, yeah. Every Sunday, my mom's eight brothers and sisters and my grandparents would go over there and she would get free chicken for life. That's awesome. Yeah, they would be like, don't abuse it, but like you have just... You know, you could have like a free chicken dinner for like your whole family uh, every week or whatever. Yeah. So that love of comedy and acting comes from her, I think. And uh, the other funny thing about her is that she had a pet monkey. And she loved monkeys. And she bought monkeys for all my mom's cousins. Because back then you could buy a monkey at the pet store. But my grandmother returned the monkey. She's like... This mon your monkey always bites me. I hate monkeys. <laughs> uh, but she, to this day, my mom thinks that it's like, oh, it's normal to have a monkey as a pet. We're not talking a chimpanzee. These are like spider monkeys. But uh, but there were tons of funny stories. Like my great grandmother would have the wedding family weddings at her house downtown on Saint Hubert, and every wedding the monkey would get loose and would climb the tree in the front yard. And the person who had the most courage that night would go and get the monkey. But there were many instances of the person with the most courage climbing the tree, falling out of the tree and having to go to the doctors because the monkey is a much more proficient climber than a wedding guest. Uh, the doctor is going to be like, why are you here for the monkey incident again? Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, it's every summer there's a couple of people, you know, those nice summer weddings always end in someone falling out of a tree chasing the monkey. And uh, the other funny thing about that is she had a big German Shepherd and the monkey would ride the German Shepherd like a dog. Oh, my God. And would get loose down St. Hubert Street. 
And people knew that it was Judiette Betty Bo's monkey riding her dog. <laughs> and the final part of that story is I was working at a greeting card store when I was 21 years old. And the only people that really cared who my great grandmother were, were like my generation's French Canadian grandparents. Mm. They're the only ones that knew who she was. And I was helping an old lady cross the street on my way to work that day. And this lady would come into the greeting card store because during the day, on a Monday at two o'clock, who's going to a greeting card store besides an elderly person out for a walk? Yeah. And, and uh, I would talk to her a little bit and uh, try and give her a senior discount when I could, even on Tuesday when it wasn't senior day. You know, you can just <laughs> press that. You can press that button. You have a lot of power when you sell greeting cards. <laughs> and uh, I helped her cross the street. She said, thank you for helping me cross the street. I said, no, you're helping me. I said, what do you mean? I said, I feel great helping you. And everyone who sees me doing this thinks I'm just a great person. They see me helping you cross the street. And they're thinking this guy, he's, he's, he's a great person. And I said, did you know my great grandmother was a Quebec film star? And she said, Oh, what's her name? I said, Julia Beribault. And she said, I used to live beside her. Uh-huh. And I said, no, no way. And she said, my brothers were friends with her son, Paolo. And that's my great uncle's name. So like she knows this. And I said, is it true that she had a monkey? I knew she had a monkey. Is it true that she had a monkey and a dog? And at the same time, we both said, and the monkey would ride the dog down (laughs) the street. And it was magic. And life is magic sometimes. Like like, uh, your life and other people's lives, they kind of intertwine. And if all that helps me share my love of comedy and acting with kids, then that's maybe what I was meant to do is use a little bit of music, a little bit of comedy, a little bit of gamification from the generation who was raised on the NES, a little bit of meditation and mindfulness through someone who uh, was always surrounded by happiness. Like uh, I didn't grow up in a house where my parents were screaming at each other. So maybe that kept me a little bit level and motivation because being an optimistic person, I'd like to try and, encourage people and i like to see the the best parts of life i like to i like to be a positive person and share that if i can combine those five things to make a six and seven year old's week better which in turn makes their school year better which in turn gives them self-esteem maybe that's what i was here to do and i think that you were put on this earth to share this love of podcasting and uh the way you are with people and uh you're using your platform to help educators share their ideas. You are probably meant to do this too. Like uh, we all have to use our skills to like make the world a better place. You know, I didn't think I would be doing this, but I'm doing this now and I love it. And I've like, mm-hmm. you got, you got to do the research. You got to learn. You got to, you got to figure out what you're doing. And then I was like, we're doing interviews with people who want to talk about their, pra- their passions. I said, mm-hmm. let's do this. And then I started doing the interviews this summer Mm-hmm. holy geez let me tell you people like yourself have yes. so much to offer so many stories so many different uh just like content creation that nobody's going to hear about because they they don't have a necessarily a platform to share yeah. it so like i interviewed a couple last night uh co-authors fantastic people mm-hmm. everybody's got different hats mm-hmm. and it's been fantastic now whether this is going to be my new endeavor for the rest of my life well i have no idea but uh so far so good and then uh it's a pleasure doing it honestly yeah well you have a way of connecting with people uh uh how did you get started 
with like how do you go from one follower to tens of thousands of followers overnight how did that happen say i i have people message me periodically that i haven't heard from in 20 years and they're and they're in business and they work for companies and be honest it's no secret but at the same time i haven't heard from you and the first message out of your mouth is hey how do you have x amount of followers on twitter and i've just kind of dodged those conversations but the general answer is this well first I used Twitter back in 2016 for just sports news for fantasy sports. I had 20 followers. That's it. And then I, I forgot about Twitter. I deleted it. And then I start. And then I had a couple of concussions. And I was supposed to go to uh, McGill for administrative leadership program and education and that. So before I started, my vice principal slash principal, who's moved on now into a different place, but. He recommended that I uh, start a Twitter account and engage with educators because we needed it for the program, for some of the courses. And I was like, are you sure? He says, yeah, you got graded on it and you have to be interactive and all this stuff. I'm like, okay, I understand. Let me start this. And I knew I worked with a, a woman who was an Instagram kind of star. I say star in quotations, but she was generating revenue from her Instagram with 12,000 followers. She would take pictures with purses and sub companies would send her things. So I, I picked her brain a bit about like what social media is to her and how she goes about it. So was she an educator? She was an educator, special yeah. education. It, it, it was very interesting because that was her side thing. And, and she was, you know, she didn't give me figures, but she said she was doing pretty well with it at the, at the same time. But then the pandemic hit and, and everybody took a hit, right? But during the time of the pandemic, and I had started my McGill courses, I was establishing a network with teachers on Twitter and I was engaging in their posts. Like I, what content did I have to share? I didn't really have content, but I would engage and make tweets and, and, and then, you know, it's like, Hey, uh, you meet a, you make, it's like making friends. Social media is like making friends. So I make a friend who has 10,000 followers and she's like, Hey, go follow Mr. Mike. And then I get like 500 people. It doesn't always work like that because you may get 10, 15, 20, a bump over time. Some people, it takes time. It's like video games. It's a, it's kind of like a grind. Mm -hmm. But for me, I try to interact with people as much as possible when I have the free time. So they know who I am and I know who they are. And I got to a point where it starts snowballing. And then my education growth, it kind of hit like a ceiling. But then I was also into my poetry writing and I started uh, engaging in other communities. So I started uh, dapping into writers and uh, and authors and different things. So I started growing more. Uh, I've self-published my poetry book. I was still tweeting about education. And then I was pandemic in and I was using it for entertainment because we didn't see anybody. I guess during that time, it, people really wanted the engagement and they were they were lonely and they were home. It, it kind of snowballed. And now I'm at that point where now I'm, I guess, I'm almost like content where people are like, Mr. Mike's tweets are coming out. Let's go write some answers. And I try, and I did, I really did my, my wife will tell you, I really did my best to answer every single tweet. And now I can't. It's impossible. So I at least, I at least read them, like them, and I throw some comments and I try to spread out my comments to different people. I try not to answer because Twitter will give you the same algorithms all the time, but try not to answer the same people all the time. But it, it, it does happen. I essentially built a community and the podcast is as a result of the Twitter account. Because I interviewed on a podcast and a couple of people recommended that they're like, you should do podcasting. I'm like, why? You have so much to offer. I'm like, no, I don't. 
They're like, yeah, just go talk. People want to hear you talk. And um, I said, okay, let me try it out. And, and I definitely didn't want to do an education-based podcast only. I wanted to do – well, first I wanted to see if there's interest. And then I started last January. And we had – I started on Anchor and we had like 20 followers. And then it progressed in like a short period of time of episodes. And I was like, this is – this is uh, there's interest. And I was like, okay, let's – Let's make more content. Let's see where we're going. And my first season is is a little bit all over the place with content and topics. So we could touch about politics that are touchy. We talk about funny things and stories that have happened to us just to see, like, get your feet wet to see where we're going with it. And I always knew, I'm like, I want to bring other people on the podcast. I just need to figure out, like, how are we doing it? Are we doing it in person? Are we recording on Zoom? Are we doing this? So in a sense, essentially, my podcast is an extension of Twitter. Yeah. Um, and I And I get... People messaging me all the time. They really enjoy it. I mean, we're not, we're not at 10,000 subscribers or anything like that, but it's progressively growing slowly, just like my Twitter has. And I, to me, it's, it's organic because unless somebody, unless somebody like Dwayne the Rock Johnson or John Cena give you a shout out, say, Hey, I was on this. You don't grow like you don't go from zero to a million in mm-hmm. a second. So it's, uh, it's, it's just time, progress and, uh, work that I enjoy. Yeah. But yeah, like I said, that we all have our set of skills and you're an engaging person and you know how to deal with people. And that's why people have, I don't know, taken you under their wing to give those first initial boosts that let you uh, grow exponentially because you're doing great. And uh, I like the dynamic you have with Mr. D as well. You could tell you guys are good friends that you've been friends for a long time. You're you're so easy with each other because you know each other well, you know. Yeah. And and it's great that you're taking the opportunity to use that platform to help educators like me. Hey, listen, you have you have great content, uh, great philosophy of life, good positive outlook. And there's no way no one's going to listen to this episode and not take something from it. One hundred percent. They're going to take what you said to heart in some capacity and be like, wow, this this I'm going to check out his stuff. I'm going to I'm going to bring that mentality into my day to day. Yeah, um, I'm trying to present it at conferences and when I can do interviews if people are interested and just share it as many different ways that I can um like I said you can find me on Facebook Mr. Andrew ESL on YouTube Mr. Andrew ESL from there you can find links to all sorts of fun stuff interactive bitmoji classroom and uh can I give a quick uh wrap-up of my five pillars yes 100% we've been there a long time uh first of all like you need modern, authentic music when you're teaching ESL. It puts you in a better mood. I made my own YouTube videos with songs that I composed on everything you, everything you could imagine that you need to teach in grade one and two, whether it's answering questions, yes and no, good morning, the colors, anything you want. Um, you make it like a concert because kids are six, seven years old. They don't have any autonomy. They, If they, you, they get a chance to go to a concert, they're appreciative of it. Uh, humor, use clean comedy, absurdist stories to link that with those same themes. You make a funny story, like in my series, The Adventures of Life, where I have me and my kids, sometimes my students, sometimes the story of my great-grandmother's monkey. You can tie that in with different themes, and you can bring that together. And if you give them a reason to laugh, th- they're going to appreciate that. And I put a, a laugh track in the back, and to six- and seven-year-old kids... To them, that's novel, right? To us, that's like an 80s sitcom trope. 
to them, that's like, what is this? There's people laughing in the background. Like, is this live? <laughs> um, so you kind of introduce them to 80s comedy. They like that. And you can make anything funny for them, you know, like anything that relates to their day-to-day dogs, cats, ice cream, monkeys. It's all funny. You know, you make it funny. It's funny. Uh, gamification. The research shows gamification works because you frame everything like a game. It's not work. And I tried to gamify everything I can. Uh, I gamify the Roblox videos. So that's how you practice your vocabulary. I tried to gamify flashcards because what's a popular card for kids now is a Pokemon card, right? It's been popular 20 years. It's still popular. You make a flashcard look like a Pokemon card. Like you give it an anthropomorphic theme. You give it a, a funny name and you make some of them rarer than others. You've now given value to this flashcard. Mm. And when I give the kids points, they can buy things with those points. I gamify rewards. You gamify the rewards. Everyone in class that's participating, even if like if we get 76%, they get points. At the end of the class, they could buy a flashcard. The funny thing is they're paying their points to buy a flashcard. But I've given these flashcards gamified value. So I say like this, this flashcard I gave you for um, like – Terry triangle to practice the word triangle and a couple of phrases about the triangle. I've given him value now. So I gave you a flashcard for a triangle and you're like, Oh, I'm so lucky that you gave me this educational material. I say, yes, you are very lucky. You know, <laughs> you give him a hockey card. Like uh, we love, both of us love hockey cards. Like how much junk wax do you have lying around from like the eighties, nineties? I have tons of cards that I've given the kids over the years. I just, yeah. I give them all the base, all the commons. Yeah, for sure. And even 1990s pro set, they're oh, all yeah. commons, you know? Yeah. And uh, when you give a kid a hockey card to you, it's common to them. They, they love it. You gamify rewards by giving them something insignificant, like a hockey card of David Volick who's uh, born on my birthday, so I always remember that. Uh, uh, they're appreciative. And when the kid, when you give them the hockey card, they all ask the same thing. Is he good? I know you tell him. He's literally one of the best hockey players in the whole world. And you gamify that. You make Roblox videos. You gamify the reward system. You gamify meditation and mindfulness by having like a, a countdown clock. I have a, a timer where we can use 10 seconds, no problem, breathe in and out. If we don't use the whole timer, we all get a point. If we only use half of it, everyone gets two points. So you gamify the meditation. And when you can work all these things together, it's like they all work together in tandem and, and they, they're they all even more effective. Um, yeah, I made some, I invented a match game with the, with the, the flashcards too. And I, I made the rare matches worth more. Like, you know, in a match game, you match one and one. Yeah. But the common ones, there's like four pairs. Whereas like the uncommon ones, there's three pairs. The rare ones, there's two pairs. And the legendary ultra rare, there's only one pair. And that one is worth more points. So I play that with the kids. And uh, you build your own universe with them, a gamified universe. And then you you have fun in that universe. You can, uh, you have the anthropomorphic triangles, shapes, colors, and vocabulary. And you... You work with that and it becomes something more than it is like it. It becomes really special and everyone wants to feel special in life. And if you can make them feel special, they appreciate it. You do that with modern, authentic music, with humor, absurdist, clean comedy, with gamification in terms of your teaching, your rewards. Gamification can mean anything from using Duolingo to like making your own quizzes to gamifying rewards. 
and using meditation, motivation, and the kids, they always pay you back. Like, uh, if you put in that positive energy, they're going to pay you back. Then their day's better, makes your day better. Makes your day better, makes your evening better, makes your night better, makes your next morning better. It makes you not go on burnout because you're not stressed out to go to school. Because you're not stressed out to see these kids. You're not stressed out to see little Gary who is going to be screaming that you're telling him to sing Row, Row, Row Your Boat. <laughs> and like, you just avoided the whole conflict. Yeah. And you see little Gary differently than someone else does. Another teacher is like, oh, that little Gary, that guy's a nightmare. You're like, no, he's okay. Like, wait, he has a little bit of energy, but like, he likes to dance. What do you mean he likes to dance? Yeah, he likes to sing and dance. But he doesn't sing Row, Row, Row Your Boat. I'm like, no, he doesn't sing Row, Row, Row Your Boat. Like, change that sentence to make it make sense. He doesn't sing Row, Row, Row Your Boat. He will sing something better. Yeah. And if 16 out of 20 kids are singing and dancing, there's like a peer pressure thing where they're all like it's not like peer pressure it's it's like if they're all singing and dancing there must be something to this and that's you got to get most of the group and if you get most of the group you got the whole group so in summary short story long check out my mr andrew esl youtube facebook uh, my bitmoji classroom you can find everything you need to find to make your school year with the grade ones and twos more effective and more effective and everyone's gonna have a better year awesome mr andrew i didn't even have to ask any questions you ran the show you touched on everything i wanted to ask fantastic mm. everybody check mr andrew out his social medias and explore his content because i'm sure you'll enjoy it and andrew thank you for joining us on the mr mike podcast wrong answers only no wrong answers today all right answers I hope so. I hope you got some good stuff in there. I got some good stuff. Listen, this is probably one of those episodes I won't even have to edit at all. It's it's just gonna it's just gonna go. An hour and a half. What is this? A podcast? <laughs> they're, they're always so long. You know, like uh, yeah, that was one thing about yours. They're so digestible because they're often twenty minutes long. You know, you don't always have an hour and a half, but you always have twenty minutes. Well, I hope in this case they have one hour and twenty two minutes to uh, digest all this good stuff. Well, the, at, at least they can pause it and listen to it later and then pause it and listen to it again and then re-listen to it and download it 10 times if they want. Thank you for tuning in to the Mr. Mike Podcast. Wrong answers only. Don't forget, check us out on social media, Twitter and Instagram, Mr. Mike MTL and Wrong Answers MTL. Tune in next time for more interviews and more discussions and more episodes with Mr. D and myself. Your support is greatly appreciated. Subscribe, download, share with your friends and family. Leave a review if possible. The Mr. Mike Podcast, Wrong Answers Only, is available wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.